Long hours, small teams, uninspiring content. Marketing for a startup is hard work, but it doesn't have to be. HubSpot for startups can help you grow your business without growing your stress. Their all-in-one platform connects your sales, marketing, and support all together so you can increase leads, fast-track deals, smooth out support, and join a platform that more than 190,000 top brands trust. Plus, they have a constantly evolving collection of resources to help startups scale. HubSpot also offers discounts for startups on their top-rated customer platform, and not the kind of discounts that barely make a dent. I'm talking about meaningful savings of up to 90%. So if you're ready to crush your marketing, look no further than HubSpot for startups. To see how much you can save, visit HubSpot.com startups. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG-13. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. You only need two huge hits a year that go outside your bubble to completely changed the trajectory of your channel. That's Danny McMahon, but you might know him from his channel, Dodford. Danny is one of the hottest rising YouTubers right now. His documentaries have done about 20 million views since January of 2023, but Danny doesn't make videos just to get views. I started to realize that the reason I create has not really got anything to do with the number that comes after it. This interview is a rare glimpse into the mind of a creator on the rise while they're in the thick of it. How did he get here? After three years of studying film and falling in love with that, it took two weeks of doing content creation where I realized, oh, this is way more fun. This is way more rewarding immediately. How is he feeling? I still don't see myself as like relevant. As soon as you do, that's a, a risk to me. And what's in store for the future? This time next year, there's a type of reputation about the videos we're making that are a league above and could be looked at as as almost a pinnacle of what to seek out when trying to create. Danny gives so many good pieces of advice for creators of all sizes throughout this interview, even some things that might contradict what you should do. I don't know if this is the best thing for all YouTubers to listen to what I do here, but for me... I went to film school because the plan was always uh, traditional movie industry and make make my own films, become a director or a writer. That was always the number one plan, at least since about age 16, 17 onwards. I was just obsessed with people like Tarantino and like real cinema. And that was my way forward that I, I only saw myself pursuing. With that in mind, at the very end of, of my graduation year, there was an extra task to try and build a bit of a social media presence, you know, not saying that they were telling us to become influencers or anything, but it was in preparation for leaving our course. You need to, if you're going to join the film industry, you need to have some sort of existence online, whether it was just a LinkedIn or an Instagram or whatever. So I made 
an Instagram account and just started making little tiny crappy videos for my 40 followers, which is the origin of Dodford. That's where it became its first thing. I made a TikTok to match it too. Those started growing. After three years of studying film and falling in love with that, it took two weeks of doing content creation where I realized, oh, this is way more fun. This is way more rewarding immediately. And I just completely abandoned that idea of doing traditional that early on. And now it just went all focused, eggs in one basket. But I, I do know that that traditional route is, will always be there waiting for me one day. There are probably a lot of peers that you have that are going and, and writing scripts and doing, you know, full length features. And you're saying, I'm going to do these short form vertical videos. Talk to me about that. Why did you get started on TikTok and what did you like about it? Well, I'll start by saying, uh, I think something that holds a lot of people back in the traditional way out of film school is, yes, you think I'm going to take everything I've learned in these last three, four years and put it into the script and it's going to be me. It's going to it's going to be an essence of everything I've learned and it's going to be the best script ever. People are going to buy it. And people pour months and months and months into making one uh, film or script they're going to dish out. And as a result, they burn all this time. It goes out into the world. They inevitably stumble and it doesn't hit the way they dreamed it would. And that holds people back. Whereas I'm not saying this was something that was premeditated, but something that afforded to me straight away by doing short form content was you make something, you try it out, you put it out, you reap the benefits or you, you learn the lessons and then do it again the next day. And that was rinse and repeat of just trying some, something new, getting better at something random every single day you've got to iterate. That's always the key early on and finding out what your mark is, your style, uh, what your identity is as, as a creator and as a person. And when that's going to slowly form and evolve. And that's what TikTok let me do. It was a way of just really testing my, uh, an audience, testing my abilities and improving them. Looking back now in retrospect, that's where so many of my skills and uh, benefits were birthed and were improved. So I do give it as like, that's my piece of advice that I give to most young creators and filmmakers who are trying to find their feet or learn something about the industry is just keep posting content. It doesn't even have to go out really to an audience or people. If As long as you make it and you're giving yourself a challenge and doing something different every single day, that's like the easiest way forward in my opinion. How long until you started to feel like I think I'm getting more attention on this platform than the average person. Never. Never? Well, it depends. The average person is. Average person, I guess, what is someone who doesn't really have an account or post. But no, I always felt like an underdog on TikTok, actually, because I had a few early hits and, you know, some that did really well. But overall, if you look at my TikTok, you'll see that through most of it, there's, I was below average views for my follower count. And I always felt like I was looking up to these huge creators who were raking in millions of views. And it was actually during that period where I started to realize that the, the reason I create isn't is not really got anything to do with the number that comes after it. And so, no, I mean, I'd still had a few hits. Like in the first, maybe my third video was an editing tutorial and that got a couple hundred thousand views. And it, I went from like, 80 followers to 20,000 followers in like two days. And so that was my first influx with people. And my, my true introduction into what this serotonin 
uh, is like <laughs> being in, as a content creator, you know. I've only had a few of them really in my whole TikTok career. So I, I always felt like I was never really a big star on the platform. When you were focused on making videos specifically for TikTok, how long do you think it took you on average to make one video that you published? It changes. Uh, I did some, like I said, where it's, I've got to do this idea today and, and put it out just because it was part of my routine. Others I would spend maybe a week on. And I think you'll be able to tell, if you went through and watched old videos, you'd be able to tell those ones that were had a little bit more thought and production value put in. I've always felt like the video takes as long as it takes to take to make, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It feels... When I've put some, when I put more time into something than typical, like if you're saying sometimes I make one video in a day and sometimes I make one video and it takes a week for those videos that take a week, if it was me, I would feel so much pressure on that video when I finally hit publish. Like I really believed in this thing. It's going to take seven X as much time. Do you feel that type of pressure when you put huge amounts of time into making one of these? Definitely at first. And I can't say that I've completely detached from that. Like I said, I think it was during this era when I felt like my views didn't reflect the effort I was putting into videos. And that's, I think it's a a stage that happens with everyone who makes videos online is that you have to detach effort with quality and um, the amount of people it's going to engage. Those are completely different things that you can't quantify together. So I definitely feel the pressure still today, but that's not the reason I create. It's got really nothing to do with the, that second half, you know, uh, influence it has. It's more so the process it was for me as a, as a, as a filmmaker, as a creative, how did it affect me and change me? And then the things that you can't really quantify, the sort of impact and influence it has, the, the, the types of comments that you'd get people who bring it up to you months later and say that, oh, I shared this with my family. We had a laugh about it. Those types of things, which are, they don't come up as a digit or a stat. It's, it's something that's like more invisible. And those are the reasons that you actually create. And I, I never tried to forget that. There is a, always a, a happy middle ground where you try and eliminate that risk by not pouring so much time into something that in the back of your head feel like isn't worth it to you. So it is always having, finding a, a peaceful place in the middle, but obviously the pressure still exists. What has your relationship to YouTube been as a platform? Do you feel like you are an underdog there as well? Did things pick up faster than you expected, slower than you expected? It definitely was slow at first for a long time. The way it works on YouTube, it felt kind of exponential. As soon as there was a little bit of growth, it all rises rapidly and your whole, because your whole library's there just ready to be seen. Everything else grows with it. That felt very rapid. And so there have been a few months in my journey, which I can look back on as, you know, real pivoting, pivot, you know, pivotal defining moments that completely uh, change the trajectory of the channel. And I, I truly feel like you only need two huge hits a year that go outside your bubble to completely change the trajectory of your channel. And it's happened to me uh, maybe one and a half times this year. And I can credit most of my growth to just a couple videos, which uh, is, there's there's many ways of seeing that. I'm 
grateful for it, but also again, that's pressure in finding that special video that can do that. And in the meantime, just trusting your content regardless and enjoying it anyway. Talk to me about those one and a half times, which one and a half videos are we talking about here? The main one is Adam Sandler. That one goes without saying. It's by far my most viewed video, about 5 million. Yeah, that single-handedly took me from 100K to 200K, essentially. It almost doubled my follower count. Wow. And I think Jim Carrey recently has been another one that's similar. And also Donald Glover, right at the beginning of the year, that kind of, in January, that was one of my first documentaries, maybe the first one, really, that truly skyrocketed and people like ended up, you know, KSI ended up watching that one and tweeting me about it, which is pretty surreal because, you know, that was when I, I woke up to the fact that anyone could be seeing it and all it takes is one shout out or one share from the right person and then everything blows up exponentially. That happened with Mr. Beast for my Adam Sandler video. He just tweeted that he saw it and said it was a good video and that just makes it grow further. I like that, that YouTube seems to be being seen by everyone. And you never know who that lucky person could be, um, which could change your life. And that's happened to me many, many times. After a quick break, Danny and I talk about when his channel really changed and his plan for the future of Dodford. So stick around. We'll be right back. D2C Pod, hosted by Ramon Berrios and Blaine Bolas, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. D2C Pod is a podcast about all things direct to consumer. Ramon and Blaine cover everything for starting, growing, and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. They talk with founders, marketers, and creators and cover topics like brand building, social media, influencer marketing, website conversion, paid media, consumer trends, email marketing, and more. So if you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, listen to DTC Pod wherever you get your podcasts. If you know me, you know how much I believe in memberships. My membership is the core of my business and earning an income directly from your audience is one of the most sustainable ways for you to become a professional creator too. So I want to tell you about today's sponsor, Uscreen. Uscreen is a beautiful all-in-one platform that helps content creators earn a living from their videos by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. You can host private live streams for your members, build an on-demand catalog of premium content, and Uscreen gives you a community hub to interact with your members too. They can access your community from their mobile phone, so your membership is right there in their pocket. With a Uscreen account, you get video hosting, an out-of-the-box website, full payment and subscription management, and plenty of third-party integrations too. And Uscreen makes it easy to get set up. You get access to powerful website themes that are fully brandable with no coding skills required. Uscreen will even provide a dedicated success manager for you. Just about anyone that wants to make money from their content can do it with Uscreen. It's perfect for coaches, authors, influencers, and entrepreneurs in just about any niche. Right now, Uscreen is used by creators in fitness, education, news, kids entertainment, and more. That includes Yoga with Adrian and Creator Now, just to name a couple. Uscreen is the platform for building a video membership site that is great for generating a sustainable income for professional creators. If you create video content for your audience, I highly recommend checking it out. If you're interested in learning more about Uscreen, visit uscreen.link slash J. That's U-S-C-R-E-E-N dot link slash J and let them know that I sent you. And now back to my conversation with Danny McMahon. Speaking of KSI, talk to me about your Sidemen video, because if you look at the history of the channel, that looks from the outside like a major inflection point. 
did that feel different when you released that video? Yes, I, I think that one, that sidemend one, I still see as a video essay, but there are moments of it that feel more like a documentary. It was a, an objective, it was a challenge of mine from the beginning to have the sidemen see that. I chose them because one, I've been watching them my whole life and I know a lot about them. And so I had a lot to say, but I also knew that they were accessible and this type of thing hadn't been made about them before. And there was a gap in the market where I could create a video that they could see and react to, which is, the, which is what they did eventually. It was a, an amazing moment because it was the first time after creating for about two years uh, where I'd kind of finally got access to what felt like this inner circle in a way of all these people that I'd looked up to, they could now like see me, which was a, a strange moment where the, all those lines kind of get blurred and uh, there's no, that parasocial relationship can falter a little bit and things have to become real. And it was, it's a weird feeling when your idols end up they're still your idols. I'm not going to say they're my peers, but you know they're people who recognize your existence, which is just weird on its own. And I got, you know, I made so many connections. It's where my network really opened up around then. After that video, lots of the UK community sort of noticed me, which was really, really fun. And then after that, it was Donald Glover, and that seemed to be when I got my US audience. I want to I want to hear more about this because a lot of people listening to this probably haven't had that moment yet, but this could be incredibly motivating for them to think about how we get there. So you mentioned, you mentioned a few things that I want to dig into. Actually, the first thing you said was the subject of this piece, the side men, you said they're accessible, but something like this hadn't been done before. So you notice this hole in the market. That's a very analytical statement to make. You, you create one video a month long form on YouTube right now. So the shots that you take seem to be like they need to be fairly thoughtful and intentional. How many competing ideas do you have at any given time? And how do you ultimately decide which one you're going to commit to next? Back then in that era, there was no premeditation or planning uh, beyond the day before I decided to make the video. So that Sidemen one, it was a good idea that hit me as a spark in a, on a weekend. And I realized, okay, here's something I can do. I will start this immediately and do and have it up hopefully by two weekends time. And that was the way it was for a long time where it was just an idea would come. What am I going to make this week? And it'll be something totally different. And it's not sustainable to keep living like that because uh, you're always relying on some idea to hit you. And it's, uh, it just, it wasn't, it's not how my brain works. And so eventually, I don't know, maybe about halfway through this year, I learned the importance of just the idea alone and the time that it comes. And so the big learning experience really for me was Drew Barrymore. Up to that point, for most of 2023 and immediately following Adam Sandler, I kind of had this confidence where it didn't really matter what the subject was of these videos. It was just the the way we presented them and the production quality, the type of storytelling we did, the way it was, the packaging, all of that stuff. I was just having all these hits and it was because of us. It was the way we created them. And that definitely is true for a lot, uh, for most of it. But when Drew Barrymore was put out, that was the first real stinker. It was the first time it didn't hit expectations and we had, a, it, it hurt me in my heart. And I learned then the true like, this has to one really appeal to your audience and it has to come at a time when there's a discussion 
whether it's a, a conscious discussion that's really happening on the internet or it's a thing that everyone's just kind of quietly thinking about. And so since then, all these videos have to be planned and thought uh, months in advance. And we look really far into the future. So I have all the way up until December next year, December 2024, all videos for each month planned out. Wow. And we've taken into consideration what is this person working on at this point in the year? Have they got a film out coming? Are they working on something? Is there a big stage of their life happening, which means they'll be part of the, the discussion, you know, the pop culture lexicon. And so I really feel like we could make the best video we possibly could, and it would just come out at the wrong month of the year. And it wouldn't hit the way that it should or could. This may seem like a strange question, but let, let's see where it goes. You're, you're talking now about how you're planning for these videos to be a hit. You want these to be a hit. Why? Why to you? What does it mean to have a hit? And why is that important to you right now? I think a hit, an immediate hit, isn't really that important to me on a, on a cellular level, but I think all creators will attest to that. You can't shake that thing off you that when something is a 10 out of 10 straight away, you know, and it's, or it's, or it's, it stinks straight out of the, the gate. That's always going to hurt. And so I think for me on our channel, it's making these productions that we really believe in and we really enjoy making and speak to us as individuals that mean something that come from the heart. Meanwhile, trying to mitigate that potential hurt of something not finding an audience. So it has to be, again, that balance of finding, making something for us, but also making something for the people. And there has to be, there's got to be a Venn diagram where that video sits right in the middle. Otherwise, you know, it's going to go to a large audience, but it's not going to be uh, fulfilling to you. Or it's the opposite, where it's a real big passion project, but no one really cares about it. For me, a hit is when it hits both of those things. When I'm proud of it and other people, it really speaks to other people. And a few videos, I think, in this, on my channel, even recently, have fit more into the passion project side of things, where it's just truly the type of video I wanted to watch and make and it's fulfilling to me in the regard that, yes, I've made that and the people who want to see it will see it. But I do want to grow the audience and I want to make sure that, uh, you know, we're proud of what we make. So I want more eyes on it, really, but never sacrificing that passion, that way that we would tell stories. It makes that's got to always be number one. You're using the word we a lot. How big is your team and what's, what's the makeup of that team? As a core, a team of three, just me, my researcher, Adam. He assists a lot with the story as well as researching. And my producer, Jaden, who just kind of keeps me on track and makes sure that and he helps a lot with the packaging. I also have Dan, who mixes the sound. And my manager, Gil, he helps a lot with brands. So it's, I don't know, maybe a team of five altogether who work on the videos. But for me, I'm still scripting and editing it all myself. Well, one reason that I ask is a team of five, and I'm, I'm sure there's varying degrees of like part-time, full-time, partner. Yeah. But there's there's uh, costs involved and requirements of the business, even even for you. So a hit also plays a role in more likely to help support the business and support the team. Do you do you feel that pressure uh, when you make these videos? Yeah, definitely. Um, I, 
ever since I hired and there are people who are on a payroll and, you know, I have to, it's, it's an extra layer of accountability now where as soon as that happened and I realized, okay, it takes an investment now every month to get these videos out. It's, a, I definitely saw the whole business and project in a different way, in a different light. In a way, I appreciate it more actually now because just one, that financial investment, it makes it kind of feel more yours in a way. I just saw it in a new way where it's, it's, it's an art, it's a slightly different art, the science of analyzing if we're going to invest this much money into something, how can we make sure that it makes a return? How can we make sure that this is a safe bet that's going to provi- help provide the business with more money, essentially? And it was just a whole new way of seeing art for me, which I've never been a financial person. I've never uh, been driven by that whatsoever. But you do have to, if you want to have a sustainable business, think about it a bit, right? And it, it's been fun for me, actually. It's been fun trying to identify how can we just make sure that this ship stays afloat, essentially. I've never done that before, but here we are. I, in some ways, I almost feel like I'm feeling some pressure from you on the performance of of these videos. And I mean, I, I exist online. I exist on Twitter, and I've been more in the YouTube community over the last year or so. Time after time, people talk about, hey, who are your favorite creators right now or who's who's up and coming? And I just see Dodford come up over and over again. Dodford's going to be big. Dodford's going to have a million subscribers in the next six months. Uh, so I'm sure you're seeing that because you're literally being tagged in it. Mm-hmm. What is your reaction or relationship to comments like that? This is a good question. It's a very good question. I had lunch with Zach Conover uh, a few months ago, if you know him, and I was having this discussion with him because it was, I think it was after the Drew Barrymore video, which was the first time my channel had hit a slump all year. And this was in June. And coming right off that cliff of Adam Sandler, where everything, if everything felt easy, I felt like I'd sussed out the, the formula. This was a, a trajectory that wasn't going to falter at all. And then you have your first real stumble and I had to find my feet again. I was telling him, I was like, unconsciously for most of the year, the first half of the year, I had seen myself like as if my purpose on the platform, my brand was the, the, the small guy who gets big views, which looking back is completely false. And if I had heard someone else describe that to me, I would have kind of even been offended by it, like as if that's something that matters to me that much. But because it was, that's what was happening and I was putting out these videos that were getting hundreds of thousands, millions of views just with either a small team or just me, it kind of felt easy and I got complacent in that, I think. And as a result, that fall hurt so much because I had to really look at myself and identify why are we making, why am I, why are we making these videos? Why are they being put out by us? What does it say? And how important is the views uh, to us? I had to like really taste the feeling of having less views for a, for a while just to learn, relearn again why I was making them in the first place. And so it was a dangerous thing of rising a bit too quickly and forgetting why you started in the first place. But that pressure still exists now. I don't see myself as someone who has to get big views anymore. But the, 
the pressure really isn't anything anymore to do with the growth or uh, the, where the channel could be in the future in terms of digits. It's more so, uh, I know people compliment the way that we make the videos and the editing, the writing, how unique they can be. And I feel a bit of pressure in making sure that we can sustain that, making sure that I know that I can keep growing as a storyteller over the years and have something new to provide. Otherwise, I don't want to get boring and I don't want to get old. So it's re-examining myself a lot, thinking of new, fresh ways to add to things, but never being buckled down by the idea of feeling like people are expecting you uh, to do big things or whatever, because I think that's always a dangerous mentality to have. I think a lot of people have had this experience of, relative to me, this thing was a success. Then after that, relative to me, this thing was less of a success. And we feel that thing you're feeling of that like, ah, why? And it sucks. And But we don't go deeper than that because I wonder where that fear actually comes from you know is it a fear that like it's over I guess every video is just going to get progressively worse now because when you say that out loud that's a ridiculous thing to assume like just because you had this one video go down that's probably not indicative yet of a trend that everything's going to zero so what is it what it what is it about a down video that that sucks so much yeah I think well for me it was the fact that I had to it was immediately followed by such a good run. And just that contrast of something that came so easily, felt so easy, then suddenly felt and looked so hard. It was as if you have to look at yourself and think and remember how you did it in the first place, even though nothing really changed. That's why it's so scary, just because it's you're looking at your history and thinking, well, this doesn't match up with the trajectory I already had in mind. But that doesn't exist. Nothing exists besides what we're living in right now. And so it's super easy to look forward and think, oh, yeah, okay, this is the path. This is where I'll be. That is irrelevant and impossible and something that you can't ever predict. It's just, it's going to go have ups and downs. That's really the only thing we can predict. How much do you look at the analytics in YouTube Studio? Very rarely. Very rarely. Mm. Say more about that. Why don't you look at those things more closely? I mean, I'll start by saying I don't know if this is the best thing for all YouTubers to listen to what I do here. But for me, I can make something that I'm really, really proud of and know that as an old man, I'll look back on one day and think, oh, yes, this is one of my most projects I'm most proud of. And I'm so happy I made this. It really speaks to who I was at this point in my life. And I can feel so strongly positive about something. Open up the analytics and see a, uh, a, a low, lower AVD, you know, or some, uh, some type of data that contradicts that and says that the general consensus was that this was a, an underperformer. And I will read that and shift my perception of my own video, which was completely concrete solid before, into this new arbitrary uh, analysis of it, which I hate the feeling of that when, even if the, the data isn't bad, just by looking at it and seeing that the, the ups and downs, the real science of it, that can detract from 
the overall message and the impact it has on me. My producer, Jaden, he does a lot of that for me where he will go through and find a lot of the big picture stuff. I'm very cool on big picture analytics of thinking about, okay, what is uh, the types of audience, the type of platforms people are using and, and learning about the, the science behind the whole brand and where we should take it, what people are enjoying the most. But on a very granular, minute level, I, I just don't think art should be viewed that way where it's, you're looking at every tiny little bump and, and trying to smoothen it out. It doesn't, that doesn't compute in my head. And I'm more of just a, okay, let's take a big Excel spreadsheet and learn about the data of everything combined and uh, learn about psychology of people in terms of the audience and behavior. But I'm not going to go through and like, I've never studied a retention graph and found a little dip and try to rewrite that in my head of a way of, re of doing it again. That's like the way I made the video is the way I wanted to make the video and it will be the way I want to make the video in the future. And I'm trying to, people who don't want to see it that way don't belong on my channel and I've got no fear of that, uh, of there being, of, of that in general. You know, it's like, if, you, if you're here, I want you to be here and I'm happy you're here. Uh, I'm not going to try and appease everyone. Well, the thing about data, the data is objective. Like it'll show you, here's some true statistics about the video. But then when you try to rationalize and understand, well, why is it that way? That's when things get tricky because you, you can make very plausible sounding arguments for why did yeah. retention drop here? That may not actually be true. That's, that's the hard thing about looking at analytics is actually understanding what they mean and getting it right. There's lots of plausible expo explanations. And if you just make an assumption and then change your entire approach to how you make videos based on that, that's a, that's a tricky dangerous thing. Mm -hmm. What about right after you publish a video though? Are you refreshing YouTube studio as often as I am? I've had, so, I mean, yeah. So <laughs> I think in the past, in the past six months, I don't know, in the past, like second half of this year, I've told myself, okay, post the video. Don't look at YouTube studio for the whole weekend. They go up on a Friday. Wow. I will have a look on Sunday evening. Usually that's when I'll like first open it up. And because the one out of 10 scale within the first seven days to me is completely redundant. Lots of my older videos that have hundreds of thousands of views now, or, or some of the bigger hits, didn't get any views for two, three weeks. And again, you're falling into the trap if you are trying to analyze straight away if something's a hit or a miss, because those things, those two adjectives don't really exist on a YouTube video that early. It's, it, anything can completely change. And so, uh, yeah, in the past, I've got, I've, beat myself up and thinking, oh, this could have been better straight away or gotten too excited early on and things fall flat. And so I don't try not to judge it too early and just let things breathe and simmer for a bit. When we come back, we talk about the way Danny integrates sponsors into his videos, which really caught my attention. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. You may or may not know that I have a bit of a domain buying obsession. Whether it's a new project idea or domains related to my existing projects, I'm buying them all. I have creatorscience.tv, creatorscience.fm. So let me tell you about my newest purchase. It's jklaus.bio. Connection with your audience is everything. We make all this content and then we want to direct our audience somewhere. Well, a great new option is with a .bio domain. Instead of some long link tree or third-party URL that people can't understand and is hard to say out loud, Using your .bio domain for your link in bio 
lets you manage all your links in one spot with a custom domain that tells people exactly who you are. It's short, it's memorable, it's professional. Your .bio domain name is your way to share yourself with the world. And right now, you can get your own .bio domain name for less than $3 at Porkbun. Yes, it's a real website and a real registrar. Just visit porkbun.com slash creator. That's P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com slash creator. If you work with clients and you want to grow your top line revenue without growing a big payroll at the same time, then consider attending the Solopreneur Summit, a VIP event hosted by my friend Ken Yarmish. Ken has personally closed over $50 million in his career as a solopreneur, all in professional services. I've learned a lot from Ken, and he's worked with some of the biggest names today. People like Matt Barker, Nasheen Chen, Laura Acosta, and Jake Ward trust Ken to get clearer offers and scale their business with systems. Now, Ken is running a two-day in-person summit on May 9th and 10th to help you build systems across marketing, sales, and client delivery. So now you too can grow without hiring. This will be a workshop setting. It's the Anti-Loud Obnoxious Conference with no more than 50 people who will go deep with Ken and other experts that he's brought in to solve actual problems in your business. Ken and his invited experts will show you their proven systems across personal branding, driving inbound leads, social selling, crafting scalable offers, using AI to automate client delivery, and more. Stop guessing and start learning from those who are three to five steps ahead of you. Get actionable tactics and proven systems to accelerate your pipeline, close more deals, and get out of client delivery hell. Head to trs.club slash summit to learn more and register for the Solopreneur Summit today. At that website, you'll see some of the other experts that are coming in that will allow you to go behind the scenes and look at their actual businesses. Again, that URL is trs.club slash summit. One last time, that's trs.club slash summit. Let me tell you about one of my favorite podcasts that I've been listening to for years. It's called The $100 MBA Show. And wherever you are on your business journey, The $100 MBA Show has lessons that can help you take the next step forward. The $100 MBA Show is a best of Apple Podcasts winner, literally one of the top Apple podcasts of all time. And it's hosted by my friend and former guest, Omar Zenholm. Omar is a business school dropout turned successful entrepreneur, and he shares real-world lessons on starting, growing, and scaling your business. You may even know his software product, Webinar Ninja. What I love about the $100 MBA show is that these are well-produced, bite-sized episodes on everything from creating a product, connecting with your market, sales, building a team, and more. This show is legit. It does over 2 million downloads every month. Whether you're a small-time solopreneur or scaling your startup to investor level, there's valuable real-world advice for you in the $100 MBA's archive of thousands of episodes with new episodes three days a week. If that sounds interesting to you, and it should, just search for $100 MBA show wherever you get your podcasts. And now please enjoy the rest of my conversation with Danny McMahon. You do sponsor integrations better than anyone I've ever seen. (laughs) It seems as if the sponsor integrations themselves are small vignettes that would probably take most people days, maybe longer to complete themselves. And you put them in so seamlessly as transitions between points in the story. So Hmm. open-ended, I just want to hear how you approach sponsor integrations you know, what you accept and how you think about how this will live in the video. In terms of, okay, let's, let's, I'll I'll give you a cool little 
a point of analysis again, which like the sidemen thing, I, I spotted that the bar is very much on the floor when it comes to <laughs> brand integrations. And the average person, the average creator doesn't try. And so I still feel like mine aren't very good. They are, they, maybe they're just a little bit different to what people expect and remember. And I've tried to cash in on that. I've tried to, to capitalize on the fact that if you put in that extra 10% of effort or even just a 10% of a, more of an abstract, unique idea when it comes to a sponsorship, uh, it stands out to people so much. Like I think it also came from these videos, there's such a, a scale to them. There's such like a, a, I don't know, a depth to them. When they started becoming more serious and the, the brands were getting introduced, I uh, didn't want the, the sponsorships to just feel like, I don't know, I didn't want them to detract away from maybe even the emotional intensity or the production quality of the rest of the video. They weren't going to be conventional talking heads. That was important to me because like I said, I kind of want these videos, they exist on YouTube, but in my mind, they're kind, they're in a way being made for a cinema, you know, that's, they're something that deserves to be seen on a large screen or that's the way I, I, that's what I picture in my head anyway, when I'm making them. And so if it just cuts to a more conventional YouTube talking head, where it's clearly a YouTuber talking about a brand that feels like a complete step away from the direction I was taking the video in. And so it was early on, I was like, we've got to try and do something unique. And those transitions are the most important part. The actual uh, meat of a brand integration isn't really that important. It's those transitions in and out where people are, you know, you're just seamlessly guiding someone into something different and then out of it again to tell a, a different point. In my latest video that's coming out end of November, Early on in like a discussion, I was like, I don't really care about what we say in this brand integration. Let's just tick the boxes, what they want us to say. But how can we find the best possible way to, to transition in from the story we were just telling mm. and then use the integration to convert a new idea into a transition out? And those are the only two points that I'm looking at. And then it's just finding how those two points meet in the middle for the brand integration. And so... It's a, it's a part I enjoy a lot of the time, and people, I, you know, people might spend a lot of uh, time on it. I do, you know, I usually spend about a week on them. One of my favorite questions to ask people is kind of a hot take on something they believe to be true, but don't necessarily have the data to back up. So when it comes to YouTube and what you're doing to grow your channel, is there any type of like hunch or assumption you're operating off of right now? that you don't necessarily have data to prove, but it's influencing how you're creating videos? I am trying more and more in each video to tell my story only with music or sound. You become a stronger creator by eliminating things from your toolbox. And so starting out, even just a few months ago, I felt like I had such a big toolbox of all these skills and things that I uh, needed to use, needed to use because they were there and they existed. It means I had to utilize them to make anything I made. Over time, I've been cutting these things out. So even just face cam was the first thing to go. Those are no longer in my video um, because it felt like, yes, that was what was that was what was expected on YouTube. You know, you have your face in it. 
And it felt like, it felt like a cop out. I was using that and in sacrifice of trying to tell better stories. Then uh, voiceover has been, started getting reduced and then completely eliminated. So there's no me in them whatsoever anymore. It's all just the editing and the writing. And as a result, because you're taking these things away, everything else has to improve. You know, it's like, if you go blind, your hearing gets better. You know, it's, it's a, it's a shift there. I think those decisions that I've made, so take away the face cam in Adam Sandler. That was the first one, huge skyrocket. Take away the voiceover in Jim Carrey, huge skyrocket. Those are two videos that have completely blown up because I made a decision in it to do it in a different way. Try, take something out of the equation and see how everything else uh, is, effect, is affected by it. And I don't know if this is something that I could completely uh, replicate over and over and over again, but I, there is something there. There is something to re really examining your process and the way that you've gotten used to it and then just reinventing the wheel almost, just taking uh, what seems like an integral core part out of your pipeline and taking it out completely and just letting it evolve in a new way. And those are the ones, those are the times that I've made videos that have really hit new heights or I feel the most proud of. What are your expectations or even goals for the Dodford channel over the next six months or 12 months or whatever horizon you have? It's kind of an invisible thing. I, I want to just keep growing from strength to strength as a creator. And I mean, uh, before we hit New Year's last year, I said, I put out a tweet saying I will hit a million subscribers in 2023. And that was just a very arbitrary thing. It's like, okay, that's the goal that I'm going to try and seek out. It's not, I don't think it's going to happen. It would take a miracle now. But um, for next year, I'm, I'm not going to give myself an objective like that, where it's just a, a number to hit. It has to be something more with the impacts or, the, or, or an influence that we're creating. I think I've got quite a, an identity that people are trying to replicate. Things like thumbnails, that, that those have been duplicated a thousand times. But so I, I would like to exaggerate that where this time next year, there's a type of reputation about the videos we're making that are a league above and could be looked at as, as almost a pinnacle of what to seek out when trying to create. I don't know. That's a, don't really know what I want. I'm not, I'm just going to take it one day at a time and try and make the best videos we can make. Uh, and try and keep having fun with it. And wherever we are in two, three, five years, that's cool with me as long as the process is fun. That's really all it is. I think about the idea of relevance a lot. I think when you start getting the, the, the dopamine hits of success online, you suddenly, at least on a subconscious level, become aware of your own relative relevance in the spaces you care about. Yeah. And it's and it's a hard thing to think about not having anymore. Do you have any reaction to that? I still don't see myself as like relevant. And I think that's as soon as you do, uh that that's a, a risk to me, like for that reason alone, because that's not something that exists forever. For most of my career, I've seen myself as an underdog. And I I don't think that will ever go away, really. I don't want it to ever go away to be honest, because I think that idea of always chasing a future version of yourself or trying to um, 
the idea of there being competition, the idea of you having to keep wanting up, one-upping yourself is the formula to becoming a better artist. And yeah, so I'm just going to, I'm just going to keep creating and not think about, I think really eliminating the noise is really important and keep focusing on yourself as a person and as a creative and just see where the road takes you. <laughs>